Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. And I'm Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored. Most people in the tri-state area have driven the Merritt Parkway with its extraordinary bridges and landscape vistas. But how could a roadway built in the 1930s during the Great Depression survive today in the 21st century without losing its charm? In celebration of Historic Preservation Month, we will learn how the Merritt Parkway, the state's most heavily visited National Register Historic District, was saved for modernization and restored to its original design. My two guests today are Chris Regren, Deputy Director of Preservation Connecticut, and author of Connecticut Architecture, Stories of 100 Places. He co-wrote the National Register nomination for the Merritt Parkway and serves on the Department of Transportation's Merritt Parkway Advisory Committee. My second guest is Wes Haynes, the Executive Director of the Merritt Parkway Conservancy, a nonprofit organization committed to the preservation, revitalization, and stewardship of Connecticut's largest and most visited National Register Historic District. Welcome to the podcast. The Merritt Parkway now is widely acknowledged as both a landscape and a design masterpiece. There have been books written about it, documentaries done on it, and here are some of the designations that it's received. It's listed on the National Register of Historic Places, it's a Connecticut Scenic Highway, a National Scenic Byway, and acknowledged by the American Society of Landscape Architects and an Architect Centennial Medallion winner. The parkway is named for Congressman Schuyler Merritt, who long represented the southwestern part of Connecticut in the U.S. Congress, and who championed the construction of a parkway to parallel U.S. Route 1. Here's what Merritt said at the Parkway's groundbreaking ceremony in July of 1934. This great highway is not being constructed primarily for rapid transit, but for pleasant transit. This county, Fairfield County, is fortunate in having beautiful backcountry, and it is our great duty to see that these beauties are preserved. Chris, tell me, how did the idea for this parkway develop? Parkway began as a traffic management project. Traffic on the Boston Post Road through Fairfield County by the 1920s was becoming really unmanageable. That was the route from New York to Boston, but it was also a local road that served businesses and homes and institutions all up and down the coastline and lots of traffic lights. Uh, and it just really became very difficult to drive. So the idea was to bypass the post road and build a road for through traffic heading from New York towards Boston or Boston towards New York or New Haven, uh, places in between. And it was started originally as to be a highway. And then with the advocacy from Representative Merritt and other people in Fairfield County, the idea quickly became to build a parkway like the roads that were being built in Westchester County at the same time. By 1990, when you and I were both working in historic preservation in Connecticut, the parkway was being subjected to a lot of projects that would modernize it. So by 1990, the Department of Transportation was working on a number of modernization proposals for the parkway. 
the Connecticut Historical Commission where I worked and the Connecticut Trust for Historic Preservation, now Preservation Connecticut where Chris works, embarked on a mission to research and author a nomination for the parkway to the National Register of Historic Places, a federal program administered by the National Park Service. The staff of Preservation Connecticut, including Chris, would author the nomination and the State Historic Preservation Office of the Commission would take the steps required by the federal government to list the property on the nation's honor roll of places that really should be preserved for the people of the nation. This was a huge task and an unusual one. Chris, what were your first steps that you took to really research the parkway? To research the parkway, my colleague, Catherine Lynn, and I um, started off with the state archives. Um, Catherine particularly worked up there researching into records from the Department of Transportation uh, that had been collected relating to the construction of the, of the parkway. And we, we also researched other parkways throughout the, throughout the nation. Uh, some of the Westchester Parkways and the George Washington Memorial Parkway outside of Washington, D.C. had already been listed on the National Register, so we had some guidance as to the kind of information that we needed to collect and some context that we could use to compare the merit to other, other parkways that were already designated. We also had the advantage of have, being able to talk to some of the original designers um, Earl Wood, who had been part of the Department of Transportation at the time, still had photographs and collections and memories that we could uh, ask him about. And Thayer Chase, the landscape architect for the parkway, was also still alive. And so interviewing him about the landscape, which is so crucial to understanding the parkway, really gave us a lot of help. Preservationists talk a lot about condition and integrity. Condition is how well something has been cared for. Is it in good shape? Integrity is how much of the original design has been kept. For example, a house that has had the porch ripped off, all the windows replaced, and vinyl sided may be in great shape, good condition, but not have any integrity. But a house that's in terrible condition, but has all its original design features, has great integrity. But how did you evaluate a road for integrity? For the Merritt Parkway, the major components were the, the roadway, the actual, actual travel paths with the on and off ramps, the landscape and the plantings that were designed to enhance the traffic travel experience on the parkway, and the bridges, which were uh, designed as, as highlights of the parkway design. So we looked at them individually. Most of the bridges had, at that point, survived. Uh, some of them had had some unfortunate repairs done to them, but most of them were fairly little altered. The roadways, similarly, had been very little altered, except for in a couple short stretches uh, around the intersections with Routes 8 and 25. That this was part of the Department of Transportation's problem with the, the Merritt Parkway at that point was that it had not been altered. It still had, was as it had been built in the 1930s for 1930s levels and speeds of traffic. I know there was a lot of discussion at the time, like if we, you know, do you have to worry about how many times the road has been resurfaced? Do you have to worry about how the shoulders were developed? Do you have to worry about the fact that Original plantings had 
died and have not were not replaced with the same plantings. How did you kind of tackle that in those ins and outs? And how many times did you drive up and down the parkway? <laughs> to go backwards, uh, up and down numerous, numerous times. I was out there half a dozen different times uh, driving up and down, making stops, stopping on the side roads and sort of climbing down the hillsides, some of which were chest deep in poison ivy. Yeah, we, we, we had the advantage of having original planting plans so we could identify some of what the original plants were and see, uh, you know, for instance, out of tens of thousands of laurel bushes that were planted, there still was a lot of laurel along the parkway. And um, obviously we... we talked to uh, a couple of botanists who help us identify ages of trees so that we could estimate, you know, if they were ones that had been planted at the time. Although the overgrowth, the underbrush, to a large degree, was something that could be removed. You know, it was, it was things that had, in a sense, had been added to the, the landscape rather than original things taken away. So that looking through them, we could argue that uh, there was enough landscape and, and the, the nature of the landscape, which is going to change over time anyway, still uh, was able to convey the feeling that had been intended in the, by the original design. How much did it impact the parkway to have the toll, original toll booth removed? The removal of the toll booths was uh, certainly a change. They had been, they were not strictly original. The, the first toll booths put up were small temporary buildings and it took a few years to build the more picturesque toll booths that were intended. Uh, and that was a loss, you know. Um, fortunately, at least one set has been re-erected at uh, Booth Park in Stratford so that we could uh, illustrate them and mark where they had been. So that was that was a loss though. Yeah, and the, then the other one is at the Henry Ford Museum, or another one is at the Henry Ford Museum, too. So uh, it's got national exposure there. I guess so. Talk about a transportation hub that moved to Detroit. I like <laughs> it. Now, the Art Deco bridges are really celebrated now, and they're certainly so distinctive. Everyone is different. That is something memorable that people talk about. Chris, tell us a little bit about their design and construction. The bridges, most, most parkways at the time used uh, fieldstone for bridges to have a sort of rustic look that would blend in with the landscape. Uh, but that was beyond Connecticut's budget for the parkway. And instead, the Department of Transportation hired a, a, an architect. This was the Depression. Architects were looking for work. Um, his name was George Dunkelberger. And he was a person of great inventiveness with a great sense of humor. We saw some of his letters and he would draw little cartoons in his, in his letters to his families and friends. And um, he had on the idea of making every bridge different. Um, there's an there's a urban legend, you know, that they, the department hired a bunch of different architects to, to design bridges and they were going to choose one. And they decided, no, we like them all. We'll use them all. But that, that wasn't the case. So uh, Dunkelberger, sometimes he would uh, make puns on local landscapes and features. There's a, there's a, on Frenchtown Road, the bridge is a little bit French looking. Um, there's a bridge that um, has a, everybody calls it the Pilgrim, but I'd say it's a Puritan 
and an Indian uh, to celebrate some of Connecticut's history. There are other bridges that use grapevines from the state seal um, and others that are just kind of zigzag art modern skyscraper kinds of designs or classical balustrades. Um, almost everyone will, a lot of them will have the, the state seal on them. I think of them as being like uh, a garden folly in an English country landscape or something, that, that there's something that add a bit of whimsy or uh, close a vista or just a little bit of extra delight to the landscape. You know, those bridges are so spectacular mm -hmm. and now there's just celebrated but I know in the 90s, they were really starting to fall apart because of the lifespan of concrete. Wes, when you picked up uh, at the Conservancy, what kinds of special care do those bridges need and how do they need to be handled? Well, back in the 90s, when the talk, when the National Register nomination uh, went through, DOT recognized that they needed to have special guidelines in place for dealing with uh, the landscape that Chris just described and, uh, and the roadway and, um, and as well as the bridges. So they did, um, they hired a firm in New York, Swanky Hayden Connell and um, Stone and Webster out of, out of Boston to come up with guidelines for bridge repair. And, you know, the bridges are all, not all, there are four different types of structures on the, on the parkway. Uh, but the predominant one is the structural type is called the rigid frame bridge, which is a steel, the span is actually steel that is uh, supported by concrete uh, abutments and then finished with concrete uh, over the roadway. These are the, the spans, uh, the rust, the steel rusts out um, before the concrete does, um, sometimes uh, pushes, uh, breaks apart the, the uh, concrete, and sometimes the spans have to get replaced. But the abutments are holding up pretty well. Um, there are a lot of cosmetic issues um, that, that are still ongoing. Some of the bridges were very carefully finished with a, more, a finish mortar that was meant to resemble different types of stone. For example, uh, Clinton Avenue was supposed to look like our own native Stony Creek granite. Um, it was a pink, pinkish hue um, intentionally. It had actually crushed uh, Stony Creek granite in the mix, in the matrix. And, uh, and over time, th that's gotten patched with a variety of different types of, of colors. And, and there, there's a, kind of like a, a patchwork quilt now, some of the bridges in terms of the cement. So, you know, right now we're using what's called a, a mineral paint. Um, it's a German technology. It goes back to the 18th century to recoat the bridges rather than some sort of waterproofing. This is a breathable coat that goes on. And we're able to tint that to at least resemble some of the original finishes that, uh, that we've done through investigation, looking at the, the breakdown uh, of, the, of the actual mortar under a microscope. So that's, that's one approach now. There are some structural issues. Uh, Chris mentioned a Comstock Hill Road Bridge, the one with the Puritan and uh, the Native American bas-relief in it, the beautiful works of art by a father and son team, the Ferraris in New Haven, that um, is just, you know, really that it should be in a museum. And it's great that it's on a parkway where 75,000 people a day uh, can experience it. But um, those uh, are really in, uh, the, the steel behind them is really fragmenting right now. So we're looking long-term at something that, uh, that may be a major conservation effort, uh, may involve some replication. On James uh, Farm Road in Stratford, the, the last bridge you encounter, because the merit stops at the, at the Housatonic River, the Wilbur Cross section is not on the National Register and continues on 
from Milford to uh, New Haven. And that, that last bridge on the Merritt with those beautiful uh, Nike wings is uh, that, that sculpture uh, needs to be stabilized in some way. So uh, the concrete isn't a permanent, uh, a perfect permanent material, uh, but it's holding up, frankly, a lot better than anyone thought um, it would have, uh, when they wrote the guidelines. And uh, there are still ways to address it. And DOT has come a long way um, towards appreciating it. And that was one of the problems in the 1970s when you know things started to go south on the parkway. It started to transition from a beautiful road into an Interstate 95, and they were treating it with that. They replaced the original uh, guide rails with galvanized um, uh, steel rails that were all beat up. I drove the parkway as a kid, started driving it as a kid in the 1970s, and they were already starting to uh, show their their age. The guidelines that came in in the 1990s uh, replaced that guide rail with uh, with a new Merritt Parkway guide rail, which um, looked more like the original one that Dunkelberger and company had designed um, back in uh, when the, the roadway was under construction. And um, it's basically a, a wooden-faced guide rail that is steel-backed, and it can handle crashes um, of cars um, at high speeds, higher speeds than the original Merritt Parkway wooden guide rail could do. So there are guidelines that are in effect that have been used for the last 30 years in rehabilitating the parkway and, and getting it back into a state of beauty, I think. Um, it, it was really losing that, that sense. And one of the great things that Chris and Catherine Lynn did in their National Register nomination, which I understand, Chris, and you might want to comment on this, they, uh, they linked the parkway uh, to the City Beautiful movement. And I think it's really kind of appropriate uh, that we're talking here today on Olmsted's uh, 200th birthday with Central Park being sort of the kickoff of the City Beautiful movement and the Merritt Parkway perhaps being the, the last gasp. I mean, we're, we're kind of the alpha and omega here. It's a very Olmstedian concept that was behind this parkway. And that went away after World War II. You know, the whole idea of highway design was all about safety and efficiency forget about beauty and just compare how I-95 crashed through Fairfield County and uh, the Merritt Parkway was so carefully sighted through Fairfield County that um, it uh, it still today is, is a beautiful road. But it's been 30 years of reclaiming that um, that beauty in the road. And Chris has been involved with it. Uh, and, and thank you, Chris, for your your longevity and, uh, and persistence on fighting for the landscape, because that's, that's an important part of the parkway. Hey, Grading the Nutmeggers. We'll return to the episode in a moment, but I want to invite you to deepen your connection to Connecticut history with the CT Explored Inbox subscription. It's our brand new e-newsletter that sends you the latest stories, exhibitions, and program announcements. Lots of great stuff to enhance your Grading the Nutmeg experience right to your email inbox. Comes out every other week, just enough, not too much. Check it out at ctexplored.substack.com. It's free. Chris, there's two other urban myths that we could uh, maybe have you dispel for us. One urban myth is that, uh, and maybe it's correct, is that part of the original plan would have allowed a horse trail along the parkway. And the second urban myth that maybe you could talk about is that there was tremendous land speculation and fraud involved in acquiring the land in Fairfield County. Can you tell us about those? 
there were mentions of, of a horse trail or paths along the parkway. Some of the Westchester County parkways had them. Uh, there never seems to have been any concerted effort to build a pathway. And, and from very early on, there, there are brochures put out about the Merritt Parkway that, that say very explicitly, you know, no picnicking, no getting out of parking along the road and getting out of your car, that it's um, not really intended for that. It's, it's a, a visual thing that you're supposed to enjoy as you drive along, but um, not, not get out and go out into. The land fraud uh, was not, that really did happen. Uh, there was a real estate agent uh, hired to help start buying up land on behalf of the Department of Transportation. And the idea was to keep part of it quiet so that prices would not get driven up, save the, save the state a little money. Uh, and unfortunately he um, did connive with, with landowners to get some land, land prices driven up a bit, and then he got kickbacks for it. Um, and that was, a, that was a scandal. I guess so. It, yeah, and it was a scandal. It, um, but, you know, it, they, they were able to build the parkway without eminent domain. Um, they were able to do it through purchase. And just think of that, that system today. Um, it's unimaginable that, yeah. that something as disruptive as a major road going in a place where there's never been a major road before yeah. in Connecticut getting built um, through just private transactions. I, you know, I, I think that, you know, the press sort of beat up on, on the land transactions and Kemp, the, the real estate agent was convicted and tried and he served time. And so, you know, it, it wasn't that he got away with, with a lot of money. So uh, justice prevailed at the end. Yeah. There we go. Wes, when was the Merritt Parkway Conservancy founded? Well, we were founded 20 years ago, and it was uh, it was really a brainchild of the then Connecticut Trust and Department of Transportation. Um, Emo Frankel uh, was commissioner, and he felt that there was there needed to be a specialized SWAT team, so to speak, to um, enforce the guide the guidelines, the fact that the rehabilitation guidelines. We've been undergoing corridor length rehabilitation uh, for the last 30 years uh, under these guidelines. Emil felt that this was a way to get uh, the citizens of Fairfield County to have a voice in uh, in the parkway and to be really focused on it, to, to make sure that DOT was enforcing their guidelines. Um, and to, to uh, a great degree, they, they have done it uh, brilliantly. There have been some rough patches. We've had disagreements with DOT. But, you know, Emil uh, left behind a series of people who were now deputy commissioners that are now retiring. We're having a major sea change at DOT right now uh, in terms of, of the people that have an institutional memory of this 30-year process. But we, we checked in about 10 years into the process when it seemed like that was a, a necessary factor. I'd also mention Peter Zabo, who really did a yes. lot of work for getting the, the conservancy started. Wes, what do you say to people today that are worried about safety on the parkway? All those trees, for heaven's sakes. Well, you know, the, the trees are being managed. Um, the, uh, I, I basically say that the, the tree-human the tree um, interaction on the parkway is relatively limited. We have other safety factors. We have trucks on the parkway that are an enormous uh, safety hazard. 
we are managing the trees. The, the trees on the median, every time we do a, a rehabilitation project, we do an assessment of each tree. We look at it for its health, um, its aesthetic value. You know, Some of them have been damaged in storms and limbed in a very peculiar way to, to remove safety hazards. And they're just ugly trees now. So um, those trees are getting replaced. And, and we have to do that on the median where they're so close. DOT um, has a, a guideline that they follow what they call a 30-foot clear zone from the edge of the road in case a car loses control. Well, we have a lot of extra um, guide rail on the parkway now. Uh, so that allows us to keep the trees a little bit closer so that we can minimize the, uh, the collision of a, of a vehicle with a tree. And we are systematically going through and taking out some of the trees that are the most problematic. Uh, white pines are, uh, are all diseased and they're very fragile and brittle during storms. We're also very concerned about uh, the ash trees. So we're very lenient in removing those when they could uh, fall across because the emerald ash borer is a real factor um, in that. So, you know, what, what we have with the parkway is a very static resource that also has this dynamic quality to it. And the dynamic quality is the vegetation and managing that because as Chris mentioned, it's it's ever changing. You know what the parkway looked like when it when it opened was uh, very different. Um, it was what Welfare Chase imagined when he designed it came to be realized, but um, it also needs to be managed and maintained, and that's one of the biggest issues we face going forward. And just as your closing comment, what is the most pressing current challenge you have? You think in preserving the parkway, and that could be Wes and Chris. Well, let, let me start because we have two pressing challenge challenges. One is internal. The, the guidelines that we've been working with successfully for the last 30 years were really uh, designed for rehabilitating the parkway, for taking it back from a state of complete disrepair to you know, get it back to a state of good repair and, uh, and beauty again. But they, they only deal with construction. And they don't set policy for moving ahead and maintaining that beauty in the long run. When, when the, um, the, the parkway opened, uh, it was governed to a certain degree. A lot of the decisions were made locally by a merit parkway committee. And when the county system dissolved um, in the 1950s, so did the merit parkway committee. So there, it all became uh, Hartford driven or Newington driven um, in terms of the decision making. So, you know, maintenance is, is, the, is a primary objective of getting those standards to a, a position where we can really maintain the beauty of the parkway and deal with replacing trees in kind and, and dealing with the bridges. They're going to need constant repair. Uh, we don't have any policy in place for uh, graffiti control right now, it's sort of issues like that. The second issue is external. The parkway was conceived of as going through basically at, at when it was built, open space in a large, uh, a large portion of it, you know, former farmland in some cases transitioned to private estates. Um, but I think everybody realized at the time that it would stimulate uh, residential development, suburban development, just like Westchester County. And it was only a matter of time before um, it would create these bedroom communities for commuting into New York on the parkway. So it was, it was largely zoned uh, for uh, single family residences, which were low rise and they're, they're below the tree canopy. 
And so you wouldn't really see them uh, over time. But as you know, we all know, Connecticut uh, suburban development has gotten bigger and in some cases, much, much bigger. I mean, uh, the High Hope Motel that came in, in the 1960s was an affront um, in terms of its size being built right next to the parkway. Yeah. Um, but last in the last two years, we've been fighting a development across the street from it that is six times the size of the High Hope, as, as close to the parkway as the High Hope is. And then uh, we recently um, opposed a development in another development in Fairfield um, that um, would be a, an effective eight-story building on top of a hill, way above the tree cover, visible for miles on the parkway. And these are two of the most pristine stretches on the parkway. So we are uh, we are concerned about about that that the we can now no longer depend on the single-family zoning as a protective device along the edge of the parkway, that we have to uh, see about maybe creating a buffer zone of some sort for development. Uh, you know, at least just put it at least one lot back from the parkway and you know, the, it, it becomes less visible from the parkway. Chris, do you have a final comment? Uh, I think Wes has outlined the challenges perfectly. So I've got two lessons from the Merritt Parkway. Uh, the first is, as Wes said earlier, that infrastructure can be attractive and beautiful and pleasant to drive along um, and, and to, to, to live with. It doesn't have to be a blot on the, the bigger landscape in which we live and uh, carry out our lives. And, and the second is that the, the lesson of the landscaping of the, the parkway, that um, huge disruption of, of the terrain, of the topography, vast clearing could be uh, mitigated by careful planning and planting. Um, you, know, you, can, you can really do a lot, even if you're cutting down lots of trees by um, replanting and re-landscaping to continue to make the merit, even if it becomes something somewhat different, that the whole idea that you started your quote with to, to enjoy as we go can be preserved. Thank you so much to both of you for taking care of this important Connecticut gem. And thank you for being on the podcast. You're thank welcome, you. Mary. Thank it was a delight. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Grading the Nutmeg and that you'll join us again for our next episode.